Chapter Seven of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Seven. During the night of the ninth of February, the travelers at Hotel de Union would have run some risk of being troubled in their sleep if the door of room number seventeen had not been shut and draped with a heavy curtain, which prevented any noise from being heard outside. In fact, two men, or rather one of the two therein, spent the night in recriminations and menaces that bore witness to extreme irritation, while the other tried in vain to calm him, with supplications engendered by fear. It is not likely that anybody would have understood what this stormy conversation was about, for it was held in Turkish, which is not a familiar language to the natives of the West. A large wood fire blazed in the grate, and a candle on the table threw its light onto certain papers half-hidden within the pockets of a portfolio, much worn by use. One of these was Ben Omar, who, in a helpless way, looked at the flames in the fireplace, which were far less ardent than those that blazed in the eyes of his companion. This companion was the unprepossessing foreigner to whom the notary had given the almost imperceptible signal while he and Antifer were talking at the end of the harbor. For the twentieth time this person has remarked, And so you have failed? Yes, Excellency, and Allah is my witness. I have nothing to do with the evidence of Allah or of anybody else. There is the fact. You failed. To my great regret. This Antifer refused to give up the letter? He did. And I refused to sell it. To sell it? He consented. And you did not buy it, you dunderhead? Is it not in your possession? You came here without bringing it? Do you know what he asked? What does that matter? Fifty millions of francs. Fifty millions? And there was a volley of oaths. And so, you imbecile, this sailor knows of what importance this might be to him? There is no doubt of it. May Muhammad strangle me, and you too, exclaimed the irascible personage, striding about the room. Or rather, that is my business as far as you are concerned, for I hold you responsible for all the misfortunes that may happen. But it is not my fault, Excellency. I was not in the secrets of Kamalik Pasha. You ought to have been, then. You ought to have found them out when he was alive. You were his notary. And then came another broadside of oaths. This terrible man was Saouk, the son of Morad, the cousin of Kamalik. He was then thirty-one. His father being dead, he found himself the direct heir of his rich uncle, and would have inherited an immense fortune if this fortune had not been put out of reach of his covetousness in the way we know. What had happened after Kamalik had left Aleppo, taking his treasure with him, to bury it on some unknown island, was briefly this. In October 1831, Ibrahim, with twenty-two ships of war and thirty thousand men, had captured Gaza, Jaffa, Kaifa, and Acre had fallen into his hands the year following, on the 27th of March, 1832. It seemed as though the territories of Palestine and Syria were to be finally severed from the sublime Porte when the intervention of the European powers stopped the son of Mohammed Ali in his current conquest. In 1833, the Treaty of Kataya was imposed on the Sultan and the Viceroy, and things remained as they had been. Fortunately for his safety during this much-troubled period, Kamalik had placed his riches in the cavity sealed by a double K, and continued his voyages. Whither went the brigantine under the command of Captain Zo? In what parts, far or near, did he plow the seas? Did he visit farthest Asia? or farthest Europe? No one knew save his captain and himself, 
for none of the crew were allowed to land, and none of them knew whether they were in the west or the east, the north or the south, for such was their master's whim. But after their many peregrinations, Kamalik was imprudent enough to return to the Levant. The Treaty of Kataya having stopped the ambitious march of Ibrahim, the northern part of Syria having submitted to the Sultan, the rich Egyptian had good reason to suppose that there was no danger in his returning to Aleppo. As ill luck would have it, however, in the middle of the year 1834, his vessel was driven by bad weather into Acre. Ibrahim's fleet was then cruising off the coast, and Morad, invested with official functions by Mehemet Ali, was on board one of the ships of war. The brigantine was flying Turkish colors. Was it known that she belonged to Kamalik Pasha? It matters little. She was chased, caught, carried by boarding, after a stout defense, which meant the massacre of the crew, the destruction of the ship, and the capture of her owner and captain. Kamalik was at once recognized by Murad. A few weeks later, he and Captain Zo were secretly carried to Egypt and imprisoned in the fortress of Cairo. But even if Kamalik had returned to his house at Aleppo, it is probable that he would not have found the safety of which he reckoned. That part of Syria, under Egyptian administration, groaned under an odious yoke. This lasted until 1839, when the excesses of Abraham agents were such that the Sultan withdrew his concessions to which he had been forced to yield. The result of this was a new campaign on the part of Mohammed Ali, whose troops gained the victory of Nazeb, whereupon Mahmud began to fear for the safety of the capital of Turkey in Europe, and England, Russia, and Austria had to intervene to stay the march of the conqueror and assure him hereditary possession of Egypt and the governorship for life of Palestine, west of the Jordan. It is true that the viceroy, intoxicated with victory and encouraged by French diplomacy, refused the offer of the Allied powers but their fleets were sent against him. Sir Charles Napier captured Beirut, and then Sidon, and then bombarded and captured Acre, so that Mohammed Ali had to yield and recall his son to Egypt, leaving Syria entirely to Sultan Mahmud. Kamalik Pasha had been too hasty in his endeavor to return to the country of his choice, where he thought of peacefully ending his troubled life. There he intended to remove his treasure, and with some portion of it, pay his debts in gratitude, debts perhaps forgotten by those who had helped him. And instead of Aleppo, it was Cairo that he found, thrown into a prison, where he was at the mercy of his pitiless enemies. Kamalik understood that he was lost. The idea of regaining his liberty at the cost of his fortune did not occur to him, or rather such was the force of his character, and his indomitable determination never to have been his wealth to the viceroy or Murad, that he contented himself with an obstinacy that could only be ascribed to Ottoman fatalism. The years he passed in solitary confinement, separated from Captain Zoe, whose discretion he never doubted, were anything but pleasant to him. In 1842, in the eighth year of his imprisonment, he managed, through the connivance of a jailer, to send away a few letters, one of them to Captain Thomas Endefer of St. Malo. An envelope containing his will also reached the hands of Ben Omar, who had formerly been his notary at Alexandria. Three years afterward, Captain Zoe died, and Kamalik remained the only one who knew where the treasure had been buried but his health declined visibly, and the severity of his imprisonment could not but shorten a life which would have lasted for years beyond the walls of his cell. At length, in 1852, he died, forgotten by those who had known him, without either menaces or ill-treatment forcing him to reveal his secret. Next year his unworthy cousin followed him to the grave, without having enjoyed the immense riches he coveted, and which had led him to such criminal devices. But Murad left a son, Saouk, 
who inherited all his father's evil instincts. Although he was then but twenty-three, he had lived a violent, unscrupulous life among the political and other bandits who had then swarmed in Egypt. As the only heir of Kamalik Pasha, it was to him that the inheritance would have come had it not been put beyond his reach, and consequently his anger knew no bounds when, as he thought, the secret of the whereabouts of this immense fortune disappeared with the death of the Pasha. Ten years went by, and Sayuk had given up all hopes of ever ascertaining what had become of the lost treasure. Judge then of the effect on him of a letter received early in 1862, inviting him to visit the office of the notary Ben Omar on important business. Sayuk knew this notary, timid to an excess, an errant poltroon with whom a determined man like himself could do anything he pleased. So he went to Alexandria, and unceremoniously asked Ben Omar for what reason he wished to see him. Ben Omar was most obsequious in his reception of this client, whom he believed capable of everything, even of strangling him straight away. He apologized for having put him to inconvenience, and said to him in his sweetest tone, But is it not the sole heir of Kamalik Pasha that I have the honor of addressing? Just so, the sole heir, said Sayuk, for I am the son of Murad, who was his cousin. Are you sure that there was no other relative in the line of succession than you? None. Kamalik Pasha has no heir but me. Only, where is the inheritance? Here, at your excellency's disposal. Saul grasped at the envelope handed him by the notary. What is in this envelope? he asked. The will of Kamalik Pasha. And how did it get into your hands? It reached me a few years ago, after he was imprisoned in the fortress at Cairo. How long ago? Twenty years. Twenty years! exclaimed Sauk. And he has been dead ten years now. And you have waited? Read, Excellency. Sauk read the writing on the envelope. It said that this will was not to be opened until ten years after the testator's death. Kimalik Pasha died in 1852, said the notary. It is now 1862 and that is why I have sent for your excellency. Cursed formalist, exclaimed Sauk. For ten years I ought to have been in possession. If this will is in your favor, suggested the notary. In my favor. Who else can there be? I will soon know. And he was about to break the seal when Ben Omer stopped him. In your own interest, excellency, it had better be done in the proper form, in the presence of witnesses. In opening the door, Ben Omar introduced two merchants of the neighborhood, whom he had asked to attend. These were to testify that the envelope was intact, and that it had been opened in their presence. The will was not very long. It was in French and as follows. I appoint as executor Ben Omar, notary of Alexandria, to whom I leave a commission of one percentum of my fortune in gold, diamonds, and precious stones, of the estimated value of four million pounds sterling. In the month of September, 1831, Three casks containing this treasure were buried in a hole dug at the southern point of a certain islet. Of this islet, it will be easy to discover the possession by combining the longitude of 45 degrees, 57 minutes east, with a latitude secretly sent in 1842 to Thomas Antifer of St. Malo in France. Ben Omar, in person, is to take this longitude of 54 degrees, 57 minutes east to the said Thomas Antifer or his nearest heir but he is to accompany the said heir in the search for the discovery of the treasure, which is buried at the base of the rock marked with a double K of my name. To the exclusion of my unworthy cousin Morad and his still more unworthy son, Sauk, Ben Omar will hasten to put himself in communication with Thomas Antifer, or his direct heirs, and with him 
follow the formal instructions that will be found in the course of the said search. Such is my last will, and I desire that it shall be respected in all its bearings and consequences. Written this ninth of February, 1842, in the prison at Cairo, by my own hands. Kemalik Pasha. We need not dwell on the reception given by Sauk to this curious will, nor to the agreeable surprise manifested by Ben Omar at the one percent of four millions, which has come to him on handing over the treasure. But the treasure had to be found, and the only way to discover the position of the islet was by combining this longitude given in the will with the latitude known only to Thomas Antifer. Sauk immediately devised a scheme, and Ben Omar, under terrible threats, became his accomplice in it. They soon discovered that Thomas Antifer had died in 1854, leaving an only son. To this son they would go, and by skillful management obtain from him the secret of the latitude, and then they would take possession of the fortune, and Ben Omar should have his commission. This scheme Sauk and the notary set about without delay. They left Alexandria, landed at Marseilles, took the Paris Express, and then went on to St. Malo, where they had arrived that morning. Neither Sauk nor Ben Omar expected that there would be any difficulty in obtaining from Antifer the letter, of which they knew the value, which contained the precious latitude, and they were prepared to buy it if necessary. We know how the attempt had failed. We shall not be astonished, therefore, at the irritation which His Excellency displayed at his endeavoring to hold Ben Omar responsible for his ill success, and at the noisy scene in the hotel, from which the unfortunate notary feared he would never emerge alive. Yes, said Saouk, it is your bungling that has caused it all. You did not know what you were about. You let yourself be played with by the sailor. You, a notary. But do not forget what I told you. What would you if Kamalik's millions escape me? I swear to you, Excellency, and I swear to you, that if I do not obtain my object, you shall pay for it and pay well. And Ben Omar knew only too well that Sauk was the man to keep his word. You must remember, Excellency, that this sailor is not one of those miserable fellows, easily deceived and easily frightened. No matter. No, he is a violent man who will listen to nothing. He might have added, a man like you, but he took care not to complete the sentence in that fashion. I think, he continued, we shall have to give up. Give up, exclaimed Sauk, slapping the table. Give up four millions? No, Your Excellency, give up. Let the Breton know the longitude the will orders us to give him. For him to take advantage of it, imbecile? For him to unearth the millions? Anger is a bad counselor, and this Sauk, who was not destitute of intelligence or astuteness, finally came to think. He calmed down as much as he could and thought of the proposal submitted by Ben Omar. It was certain that nothing would be got from Antifer by stratagem, and some other scheme must be thought of. The plan agreed upon was this. His Excellency and his very humble servant would call in the morning on Captain Antifer, give him the longitude, and learn from him in exchange what was the latitude. When the information was obtained, Sauk would endeavor to forestall the sailor, and if he could not do this, he would accompany Antifer during the search and endeavor to carry off the treasure. If, as was probable, the islet was situated in some distant part of the world, the plan had many chances of success, and the affair would end Sauk's advantage. When this plan had been definitely agreed upon, Sauk added, I rely on you, Ben Omar, to be straightforward. If not, you can rely on me, Your Excellency, but you promised me my commission. Yes, for according to the will, the commission is due to you, on the express condition that you do not leave Antifer for an instant during the journey. I will not leave him. 
nor will I. I will accompany him. In what capacity? Under what name? As the chief clerk of Ben Omar, and under the name of Nazim. You? And this you was said in a tone of despair that indicated only too clearly what violence and misery Ben Omar anticipated. End of chapter 7